Jonah 3. So the plan today is to get through the whole chapter. Uh, but just to kind of recap where we've been in Jonah 1, we have um, Jonah fleeing from the Lord, and, and there's a contrast that's set up between uh, how Jonah responds to God's word and how the sailors respond to God's word. That's really the big plot line of Jonah 1, and it's pretty, it's pretty striking to see that, that um, contrast. Jonah 2 is Jonah's prayer. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the origin of the prayer because he seems to draw from the Psalms extensively, in fact, kind of verbatim at some points. But also there was a, a question that we, that we wrestled with a little bit last week, which was, um, why is it that Jonah can pray in such a way that it's, it's as if it's already happened? Uh, he's, he's essentially, answer, he's, he's, He's crying out to the Lord as if the Lord has already answered it. And so we talked about why that might be even chronologically and even in terms of the, the role of the fish swallowing Jonah, maybe in, in a sense, well, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, but maybe in a sense by the time that happened, Jonah knew he was actually going to be uh, rescued. Because if you look at the language that he uses, it, again, taken from the Psalms, it's it's about the fact that the deep was swallowing him up, but now God has saved him. So it could be that, or it could be that it was just far enough along in his time in the fish that he was aware that it was going to happen. And also, um, I suggested to you that I think Jonah had a sense from the Psalms of exactly what the Lord was doing, and so he could be he could pray with confidence. In any case, that's where we left off. Verse ten: The Lord spoke to the fish; it vomited Jonah up upon dry uh, dry land. Now, I want to just point something out really quick that that is true in every chapter, and it's very true. In um, or it's very explicit, I should say, in chapter three, um, that in each chapter the action, as it were, the kind of main movement of the plot is something that happens specifically because of God's word. So if you look at verse one of chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then chapter two, verse ten, the Lord spoke to the fish, and then chapter three, verse one, same thing. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, and then and then the the and then it's going to reference the word of the Lord uh, a couple more times in chapter three. So, so the this is this is something that if we've missed it up to this point, chapter three really drives it home. It's the Lord who's doing the work, but we can be even more specific than that and say the Lord does His work by His word. And this is a great principle that we see throughout the Bible that just needs to be part of our thinking all the time. Um, oftentimes you'll hear um, uh, Dr. Phillips pray in this way and, and, and talk in this way, and it's, it's exactly right, uh, that, that in the Bible, God uses his word to do his work. That's just the, the, the axiom, that the way in which God operates, the way in which God accomplishes whatever he's going to do is almost always by his word. And, and that's, that's um, you know, again, it's really explicit here in Jonah 3. It's explicit in Jonah 1 and 2. And, and that's important for us because then you have to say to yourself, okay, if God does his work by his word, then what I, that's what I need to be about as well. I need to make sure that I am, um, I'm meditating on God's word because he's going to do his work in me through his word. I want to support and to the extent that I can participate, participate in the, the proclamation of God's word, whether it's in a, in a large setting or a small setting. And that, that's what I want to be about because 
because and, and, and if I'm thinking like where you know about um, looking looking for places and people that God's going to work through in my life, I, I want to look for God's word to be present because God does His work through His word, and so that's um, that's that's kind of a a bit that's just a big picture biblical principle that's played out on a small scale um, here in in Jonah chapter three. Now, and, look, and just look at it. I mean. Uh, word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Jonah arose, verse 3, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And then, um, again, at the end of the chapter, it's going to mention the word of the Lord. Um, and then, and then, how do the people actually repent? Uh, what we see in Jonah 3 is they repent when Jonah proclaims the word of the Lord. So, it's the word of the Lord doing it, it, his work in, in Jonah's life. And then, as Jonah preaches, that's when things happen in Nineveh. So all of it is is from God's word. Now, let me um let me read through the first 5 verses and then there are a couple of points that I think are worth making there and then we'll go on to the rest of the chapter. Jonah 3:1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you." So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into that city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, a couple things to, to look at. I think it's pretty easy to understand what's happening there, so we don't need to explain too much of the details, but, but a few things that I want to mention by way of detail. One, there's a question that that uh, commentators have raised. It may not have been a question that was raised in your own mind, but in uh, verse 3, it says that Nineveh, so when Jonah actually goes to Nineveh, uh, Nineveh, it says, was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, so, so there, there are a couple of ways that people have tried to understand this. Uh, if you... If you uh, if you look at the actual um, uh, circumference, I guess, of the city of Nineveh, I mean, we, we kind of know what the what the boundaries of Nineveh looked like. Um, th- that's been uncovered, and so people have said, well, "Well, hold on a second. You could walk around the whole city in less than three days." And that's true. So there's two ways of of kind of dealing with this. I'll tell you which one I think is is better. Uh, the first day is some. The first way is some have said, well, there's another city that's kind of a, certainly a suburb of Nineveh, Nineveh, but it would have been in the orbit of Nineveh in terms of uh, economic uh, structure and everything. It's called Kala. And and some have said, well, if Jonah went there first and then went to Nineveh, that would be about a three-day journey. And so maybe it's sort of like greater Nineveh that Jonah is, is meant to be preaching to. That's a possibility. I think a better way of, of understanding this, and I think the NIV does this, at least the older NIV did. I, I didn't check the new one. But uh, it's something like to say that Nineveh, um, a visit required three days, that kind of a thing. So you know how if you're visiting a city and you're going to go there and someone, and you might ask someone, I, I used to get this question all the time when we lived near Philadelphia. They would say, people would say, how, how much time do you need to visit Philadelphia? And I mean, one answer to that question would be like, well, you know, just 
doesn't take any time at all. You just walk in and walk out. But that's not what they mean, right? What they mean is, how much time do you need to, to, to get a feel for it, to really to see it, to, to see the major sites, that kind of thing. And then you sort of parse it out and say, well, if you had two days, you could do this and this and this. And if you had five days, you could probably actually do some more and it'd be worth your time. You know, and that's the way we answer that question. And it's, and it's probably the case that that's how, um, that's how Jonah is writing about it here. That Nineveh was sort of a, it, it took three days. It was, it was a huge city. And in order to go to the places where Jonah would need to go, in order to preach, because he's not just saying this once, he's kind of going around the city. That's a, that's a three-day trip. Nineveh is a kind of, you need three days to see Nineveh, is the idea behind it. So that's just a small thing, but it gives you a feel for how big the city was, because it wasn't like Jonah could just go right to the downtown and or right to the center of the village, and you know everybody was basically there on market day or whatever. And Nineveh wasn't like that. Nineveh, and we know that again from from archaeological evidence that Nineveh is this, is huge place, and there are all kinds of different neighborhoods in Nineveh, all kinds of different uh, places. Some are residential, some are commercial. Some are uh, devoted to worship. And, and, and Jonah, if he was going to really do it right and really kind of evangelize the city of Nineveh, it was a, a three-day three thing. Now, the, uh, the, the second thing, though, that I want to point out that's, I think, important is in verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So he's about a day into his, you know, three-day tour of Nineveh. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, this is apparently what the Lord told him to preach. It's a very um, short message. He doesn't even mention, he doesn't even mention the Lord in this. It's, it's very truncated. And it's possible that there was more that he said that's just not recorded. Maybe this was like the, the application part, the the final kind of punchline of the whole thing. We don't know, but it is interesting. It's a very sparse kind of, uh, kind of sermon, but there's a word that's used that is, is kind of um, ambiguous. And, um, and, and, and so I want to talk about it a little bit. It's, it's the word that's translated as overthrown. Um, it's taken from a, it's a, it's a, um, a variation uh, of a Hebrew word hafak, which means to well, it means to to totally flip something upside down, basically. And usually, and and this is certainly how they heard it. Usually, in this context, um, it would have been a, it was a judgment kind of um, you know message that you know if if if, if someone came to you and said. Um, in, in 30 days, your life is going to be turned upside down. I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a matter of temperament. Like if you're an optimist, that sounds good to you. But I think most people, if they heard that, would say, uh, what's going to happen? You know, this, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound good. Um, your life is going to get turned upside down in 30 days. Uh, that, you know, I, that has a negative connotation to it. And that, that's certainly how... Um, that the Ninevites heard it. But there is a little bit of ambiguity to it because if I came to you and said, look, you've got you've to uh, repent because in 30 days your life is going to be turned upside down. 
or you've got to straighten things out because your life is going to be turned upside down in a month. Um, you, uh, you, you would, you would hear it as uh, a judgment. But if in 30 days, you know, things were way better, you know, all your problems were, were solved suddenly, then, you know, I, I still was right in what I said. And, and that's, that's kind of the, the interesting ambiguity of Jonah's message. It sounds like a judgment, and, and I think rightly so. I mean, I'm not trying to, I don't think they were confused. I think they heard it as a, at least, potential judgment from God. But, um, but it does have this other layer to it, which is, um, which is potentially good. And, and, and what, what we see, actually, in Jonah 3 is that, because they get right with the Lord and they they repent and they believe and all this stuff that we'll look at in a second, it actually turns out that Jonah's message is fulfilled, um, but it's not fulfilled in judgment. It's actually fulfilled in total transformation of the city. Um, so it is a it's a there's no perfect way to convey it in English. Like I said, the best I can do is something like your life is going to be turned upside down which I think comes across as negative. This definitely would have come across as negative, but there's ambiguity. Is that reading motivated by the attempt to say that it did come true? I mean, I wonder if that's like a false pressure since, I mean, all those, can, even unconditional prophecies are implicitly conditional. Sure. Is, is that, but is, how much is that? Well, it's hard for me to judge my own motivation. No, not, not, I wasn't saying yours. I'm saying no, no, no. Well, commentators actually go different ways on this. A lot of commentators will say, will say, no, it's, it's all judgment, but it's just there's this implicit. In fact, I would say most modern commentators will say that. They'll say it's all judgment, but there is, even in a proclamation of judgment, this kind of implied call to repentance that then gets embraced by the Ninevites. So I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But I am struck, the reason why I'm making a thing of it is not not to avoid that pressure, because you're right, that happens, and, and that's okay. But it's because it is a different word. I mean, he doesn't say, you're going to be judged, you're going to be destroyed. I mean, he uses a word that I think carries with it a degree of ambiguity. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard, again, hard to judge for sure. Uh, it, but but I'm struck by the fact that he doesn't specifically say destroyed. That's not that's not actually what it says. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you kind of evaluate that as you will. Uh, all right. Um, okay, so now... He preaches this. Um, it's three days to get around Nineveh. Yet forty days, Nineveh shall be overthrown, and and then and then we get the people's response. And I wanna, I want to spend a little bit of time just just focusing on this because um, it's not exactly like chapter one where we put the column A, which was what Jonah did, and the column B, which is what they did. Really, all Jonah does here is he preaches. And um, he, um, he preaches. And then, and then what happens when he preaches? Well, it's actually pretty specific. And I think we can, act, we can delineate a number of the steps that take place. First, he preaches. And I want, and I want to note that he preaches a message that is about... God's 
again, they would have heard it as judgment. That's why, notwithstanding what I just said, they, they heard it as, you know, we God's going to pull things apart. God's going to tear our lives apart, turn us upside down. So there was this preaching on the judgment of God. And what's their, what's their response to it? Well, in verse 5, their response is, first, um, it says they believed God. So the first thing that we see that happens as a result of this preaching is, is faith. But we can almost say it's faith and repentance all at once because... First of all, in the Bible, those are two sides of the same coin, but also it's pretty specific because in verse 5 it says, they believed God, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So, it's faith and repentance from their sin. They're, 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 they're mourning their own sin. The sackcloth would have been a sign of that, a sign of mourning. And, and they're immediately doing that. So this isn't just, you know, so if you read uh, the beginning of verse 5 as the people believed God just in some abstract way where they, oh, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe God's real. That's not how it worked. It was personal transformation. It was personally convicting. They had a conviction of sin. They turned toward God in faith. Um, they, they trusted in him. Then... What we see is, and, and notice that it, this is, this is um, indiscriminate. What I mean is it's from the le least to the greatest, it says. In other words, this isn't something that just, just applies to the poor people of the city who were kind of looking for extra help. Or, it's not just the wealthy people of the city who, were, who felt the emptiness of all that they had. It was everybody. It was, it, was a, it was this basic message that Jonah gave. Again, it might, we might have a truncated version, but this basic message about the coming judgment of God was a message that applied equally and fully to everybody in Nineveh, from the least to the greatest. Now, let me then read in verse 6 to continue this on. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, we'll, we'll get to that last part in a minute. But um, now we get not only this faith and repentance among the people, but, um, but it reaches all the way to the king. And what the king says now is every single person in Nineveh has to engage in this kind of mourning. Um, now, it's really, it's really sort of striking because what that shows us is that these people weren't simply looking at their own isolated uh, need for salvation, but they're immediately, and the king is sort of an example of this, in whatever sphere of influence they have, just 
doing dropping everything, doing everything they can in order to cause people to take seriously this this word from the Lord. So we get then to the king, um, king issuing a decree. And, and notice how comprehensive the decree is. Well, I mean, before he does that, he himself is in sackcloth and ashes, according to verse 6. But the proclamation that goes throughout all of Nineveh, the, the, the order that goes throughout all of Nineveh, is uh, a proclamation that extends to everyone. In fact, it extends even to um, these, the beasts of the, of the city. It's not just to the people, it's even to the animals. And it's kind of a weird thing to think about, like the animals are going to be covered with sackcloth and ashes. How exactly is that going to work? I can't, you know, I try to dry my dog off after walking her in the rain this morning. It's, you know, it's kind of this nightmare. And, and, and here you've got to cover everybody with sackcloth and, cloth and ashes. Uh, all of the animals have to be covered. So it's, it's hard to even conceive of, but, but the, the, I think one of the, although, although interestingly enough, at the end of the book of Jonah, it actually mentions the animals again. Because when the Lord says, Jonah, you know, I can't believe you don't have more compassion for all these people who live in the city. And, and there are animals who live in this city too. Um, but, but the point is here he includes all of them. And, and, and the question is why? Why are they included? And, you know, I, I, there are different um, suggestions that have been made. But... I think at the at the most basic level, what we could say is this: that that um, again, all the king issuing a decree is a way of um, showing us that whatever authority, whatever was under your care, whatever sort of sphere of influence you had, down to like the animals that you were in charge of, that all of it, every bit of it, needed to be totally changed, totally transformed. The way you thought about everything needed to be transformed because of the word of the Lord. It's, um, to me, it's a little bit like what Paul says, where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it's Paul's way of saying that every, every part of your life is something that you can do to the glory of God. You need to do to the glory of God. And every part of your life matters in terms of your consecration to, to the Lord. It's the same reason why earlier, so that's later um, in Paul's letters, it's the same reason why earlier, when you look at the law, and the Mosaic law, and particularly the law for the priests, it's amazing how meticulous it is about every aspect of their consecration, the way they wash themselves, the particular clothes they put on, the order in which they put them on, the order in which they enter the tabernacle. Um, it's like everything is ordered, and it's because um, what, what the priestly code tells us over and over again is that they need to be holy because the Lord is holy. And Paul's saying much the same thing. So, you know, everything matters. And, and the king realizes this. Sometimes today, I think people have a, a sort of truncated, very narrow view of, 
of the gospel and its effect on people's lives and the effect it needs to have on people's lives. So they, they sort of, they try and boil it down to the lowest common denominator and make it very individual. And, and, and so, and so it's really just about you slightly modifying, like maybe just slightly tweaking your view of something spiritual or your view of something that has to do with how sins are forgiven or, or your view of, of the afterlife or something like that. Just something, it's a, just kind of a couple little tweaks that you make inside and and once that happens, um, that's it. That's, that's, what, that's what conversion is. But it's not what conversion is um, when you look at the scriptures. When, when you look at the scriptures, conversion is this radical transformation that is that actually, you know, you don't recognize all the implications of it right away. But, but it, it eventually, you kind of retrospectively look back and say, oh, that, that affects everything. There's, there's nothing that's untouched by that. And some people, because of the nature of their conversion, recognize that because they know, you know, they look at their life and they say, well, that's true, then everything has to change. You think about Paul when he's in Ephesus and he's preaching to these people and all of a sudden they say, okay, well, if we believe that, then we've got, to, we've got all these books in our house that we've got to bring out and just burn. And even though it's really valuable, we just have to... We just have to get rid of them. And, and that, that's the kind of thing that happens. But sometimes it's harder to realize that or harder to recognize that, particularly if it's just something that's familiar to you and something that's always been um, a part of your understanding of the Lord. You've always believed the Bible, maybe. Um, it's harder to recognize that this is, this, this is from the top down. This isn't a small thing. Um, it's, it's a massive thing. I think... Um, I think uh, Dr. Phillips, a few weeks ago, I, my weeks are kind of mixed up in my mind, but um, in a sermon he made a, an extensive point um, about the need for, um, you know, to, to, to take seriously the Bible's commands about being unequally yoked between believers and unbelievers. And, and one of the reasons he, he cited, and it's a biblical reason, is because, you know, you think, okay, this is a small difference, like we really get along well. Um, it's just a small difference that, you know, he's not a Christian or she's not a Christian and I am. But, but no, it's, it's massive. It's, it's, it kind of is everything. And it affects everything. There's no area of your life that if you really take biblical teaching seriously and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit's at work in you in a, in a sanctifying way that won't be affected. And so I say all that to say, I think actually... I think actually that's one of the main reasons why um, in, in Nineveh, when it talks about the conversion of the city, it even includes the animals. Because sort of everything you do, everything the city does, is going to be changed completely and should be changed completely if they take seriously the teaching of the Lord. So at the end, when the Lord says, don't you have compassion on all these people and their animals? It's like, because... Because it's transformational. It's, it's not just about, you know, don't you care about your, your neighbor? Um, don't you care about your neighbor and his children and his work and the community you live in? And, I mean, that, like, because it's all affected by, by the teaching of the gospel. And so, and so that's why I think the king, to his credit, the king of Nineveh, 
while Jonah was maybe aware of this, but doesn't text doesn't tell us that he was even preaching all this, but um, the king, to his credit, recognizes everything under my authority needs to be changed by this. So another implication of that, if you're a Christian, is to think through the various spheres of your life, the various areas of oversight that you have, and, and some some have a lot of areas of oversight. Some it's pretty it's pretty narrowly focused on them and their work they're doing. But whatever it is, you you, you need to actually do what this this king does, and say um, say well well how has how has this teaching of God's word how has the gospel how should it change the way I think about myself as a father how should it change the way I think about my friendships how should it change the way I think about my work or my study or you know, or what I do with my time or my money. I mean, th- th- we all have different things kind of under our control. And, but, but whatever those things are, it's right to say, hold on a sec. If this is really what I believe it is, then, then, then let's go all the way down the list and, and, try, to, and try to take this uh, down to the bottom. The king does that by saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now that's the second thing I want to point out about this king's edict. It reminds us that the gospel affects everything, but it also reminds us of the proper order of things. And this is actually, I think, really important particularly in the church today, that um, the king's transformation and the transformation of the city spiritually, that, that spiritual transformation that takes place is they, they are warned of the judgment of God and, and they're told to flee the wrath to come and they do. That spiritual transformation, which starts with faith and repentance, uh, and, then, and then they start to think, well, how does this flow out to every area of my life? That, that's the order in which, in the Bible, that's the order in which societal transformation takes place. In other words, in other words you, don't, you don't change the city of Nineveh um, in, in any kind of meaningful way by going in and saying, and starting with um, the end of verse 8. Uh, let's, let's have everybody stop doing the violence that is in his hands. Um, let, let's, let's, let's kind of deal with the societal problems first, which are many and and significant. I mean, Nineveh was a violent place, but all cities are violent places if you sort of strip them down. Um, and, and, uh, and he did, but he doesn't start, it doesn't start there, but that's, but that is a, but that is a, um, that, that's a result that, cannot be avoided. That's an unavoidable implication. So societal change is the unavoidable implication of the gospel, but it, but it in and of itself is not the gospel. And actually, very clear in the text, it starts with verse 5, they believed. and They repented and believed. And so it's repentance and faith that starts it, and, and that's not small. Repentance and faith is going to change everything all the way down. As people begin to take it seriously, it's going to change the whole city. It's going to change the whole Ninevite culture for 
for a generation, or really maybe, yeah, generation and a half. We'll, we'll deal deal with that later. How long this lasts, but but it's going to change the Ninevite culture. It's going to change their lives, their families' lives. The, the whole city's transformed. But but it starts it starts with faith and repentance, and then works its way down there. So I want to emphasize both of those things when it comes to. Uh, the preaching of the word. I want to say, first of all, this must and it will change everything in a society. But while I would love to see that societal change take place, I really would like to see it. It would be better for everybody. It would be better for my kids. It would be better for my grandkids. It would be better for everybody if that societal change took place. Going after it by trying to change the society apart from apart from actually changing their faith and repentance, apart from changing them by the word of God, by the preaching of the word of God, that's, that's going to be superficial. It's going to be relatively insignificant, if it even changes anything at all. And so churches and, and we as Christians could kind of flip this around and say, we want to see the city changed. We want to see culture changed. We want to see society changed. And we get very focused on that, and rightly so, because it's a mess. But, but we say, what, what, I'm, what I'm called to do as Christians is go after that, try to change that, try to get, get, uh, spend my energy on that. And, and, but real societal change always starts at the level of people's beliefs. It always starts kind of up here. Or if you wanted to even make it sound a little more secular, you could say it always starts with ideas. Um, and, and so the reality is, it's at that level that the gospel comes in and the preaching of the word comes in, and then that will have a, a massive changing effect. Um, so if churches and we saw we see this in our own day and we saw it throughout the 20th century if churches begin to say i got to deal with the society effect societal effects that's what i'm going to spend my time and energy talking about well you'll actually lose both you you will lose the societal effects you will lose that battle and you will also lose what what really makes a difference which is the preaching of the gospel and so we have to keep it in the right order we have to keep it in that kind of Jonah 3 order. And I'm not giving Jonah a lot of credit for this because he doesn't seem to play a big role except that he just says what God tells him to say. We know that Jonah's a terrible missionary and, and uh, yeah, I mean, and has a terrible attitude even after he sees total transformation take place. So I'm not, I'm not elevating Jonah as this great preacher. I'm just saying he does preach. And, it, and it's that that then flows out. So... What are some of the implications of that? Well, again, one implication is, what do you want to invest in? What is the church supposed to do? What the church is supposed to do is proclaim the word of God faithfully. Preach the gospel faithfully. Proclaim Christ in a, in a continual, clear, powerful way. Aiming at the hearts of people from the, at, at every end of the social spectrum. And, and then what happens? What happens is the Word of God comes and transforms people. And then, and then of course, as, as, they're, as they begin to understand this transforming power, 
they say everything in my life has to change and as everything in their life has to change that's going to ultimately change the society and change it in a really substantial way and if you're a king you say this has changed everything so much that I've got to get people to um, walk differently in their lives with their neighbors because of the transforming power of the gospel but that's the order and the order is really important here um, but and the king, as I said already, uses whatever power he has to change the things that he he can change. Um, all right, let me pause there. I want to make one, two more points, but let me pause there. Comments or questions or um, pushback or anything like that. Anything particular? Go ahead. I didn't raise my hand, but I did have. A well, you were about to. I could see. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Uh, the king commanded these people not to release affairs. He did. That's yep. on America. Right. Yes. And um, yeah. So so it, well, it's not it's not America, obviously. And 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 I don't and I don't mean that in a glib way. I just mean I think the principle is um, when we read about what different people do in their spheres of influence, the principle is not so much to say. We should return to uh, an absolute, you know, despotism like the Ninevite city. Like, that's the way to govern. Well, I don't think that's the point. The point is to say, whatever, whatever authority the Lord has given to you, and whatever, and whatever influence you have, that's all in play. Like, you need to use that for good gospel purposes. So... It's not so much that we should imitate, or, or I don't even think this is what the text is telling. I'm not just trying to avoid the, 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 the tension, but I the text isn't telling us, you know, how cities are to be governed, per, like in a, in a structural sense. But what it is telling us is, look, if you're a, if you're, I, I do think it's true that to say, look, if you're a business leader, if you're a, if you're a politician, if you're, you know, a, 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 um, in any, whatever f sphere of influence you have, it's, it's actually required of you that you use that and operate in that in a godly way. In other words, there's not, there's not a separation here. This is, this is the part that might, we might feel a little tension, but it's, well, we should. It, there's not a separation here where you can say, well, here's, you know, I'm not... Six days a week, I don't really have to be a Christian, but one day a week I do. You know, and, and there are actually certain types of even conservative theology that will that will sort of say that. That you've got this sphere, which is kind of your spiritual sphere, and then you've got everything else, your work, and don't even think about it. And if you're a and if you're a you know, you're a governing official, don't worry about uh, fighting against unjust laws or, or, or fighting for what's right. Because, because all you have to do is think in a purely secular way over here. And that's, that's true. That's definitely broken down by this. I agree. So, yeah, not so much the structure of how he does it, but that he does it is something that we should, we should learn from. And that's not just true in Jonah. That's true in everything we see in the New Testament. When, when we see people converted who have positions of authority, they'll ask sometimes, what do I do? I'm a centurion. What do I do? Um, and, and they'll get 
really clear advice from Jesus and the apostles. And the advice is stuff is stuff like, well, don't don't do anything unjust against people. Don't use your authority for unjust means. Don't defraud people. Don't intimidate them. Don't don't use violence inappropriately. And and the point is that whatever sphere of influence you have, there are certainly jobs I think that are probably inherently evil, but we're not talking about those. Being a king isn't inherently evil. Being a centurion isn't inherently evil. But uh, you need to use that in, in a different way than everybody else. You need to look at power in a totally different way, and authority in a totally different way. And that does, yeah, that does cut against the grain of a lot of what we what we think it's supposed to be like. You don't just turn off your your biblical thinking, your your con- converted mind when you when you walk into your office. Now, how that plays out is going to be different in different people's situations, um, but. I could give lots of examples of people I know who are in positions of authority in business, and they they said, you know, it doesn't change anything. I've got to I've got to be a Christian here, however I can be, and that might be costly, and that might that might at least seem to hurt the bottom line or whatever. But that's okay. That's what I need to do. So that that's really important an important lesson. Do you want to add to that at all? Were you thinking in terms of political? I'm always kind of structures. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the magisterial reformation. Yeah, no, I mean, but and that's a great example, right? The Protestant Reformation was, in the main, moved forward by the the the, the working together of uh, princes and of preachers, and 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 Martin Luther was not at all afraid of saying. Listen, this is what you're supposed to do. If you're a Christian magistrate, here's how you're to operate. Yeah. Um, so let me let me make another, um, just we may have time for two more brief points that I'd like to make. One is just a little note, whoops, that this is not just for Jonah's day because look at what Jesus says uh, in, in Luke 10.32. Um, do I have that right? I'm not sure I do, actually. Sorry. Um, I don't. I wrote down the wrong, the wrong verse. Um, I'll quote it for you. Oh, no, it's in, it's sorry. It's in, um, Luke 10, uh, um, uh, where is it? No, it's not even in. Ten. I was thinking of it in 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 Luke ten thirteen, but actually that's not right either. I'm just gonna say that. Um, uh, sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to spend time looking for it. Um, I just want to say that Jesus Jesus condemns the people of his own day by comparing himself to Jonah, and he says something something greater than Jonah. And, and we could say someone greater than Jonah is here. And, and the, the comparison he makes is the Ninevites, when they just had Jonah, responded. And you have something greater than Jonah, and you haven't responded at all. It's similar to what he does say in Luke 10. Maybe that's why I wrote it down or had it in my head, where he says, um, Woe to you, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, because... If the miracles that were performed 
in, in even in, in Sodom were performed or that were performed before you were performed in Sodom. They would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. But it's the same principle, although it's not the same. It's not the same comparison. And 11, oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Why don't you read it since you're there? Okay. Eleven twenty nine. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, "This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." Right. And here's the and, and this is the, the the sort of damning part of that is that they had all the Ninevites had, so to speak, was Jonah, who you know, terrible missionary. But the Lord does something extraordinary to get him there. And, um, and, and they repented. And they societally repented. Like they just, from every sphere of influence, they said, what, what needs to change? We're changing it. Um, and, and then Jesus' point is to say, look, you have the, uh, me. You have the resurrection. And, and so it's a, it's a very important, it's a condemnation of them, but it's a very important um, call to us as well, because we have the sign of the resurrection of Jesus, not just three days in the belly of the fish, but three days in, in, in the earth, and, and, and we have this great sign of Jesus, and yet, and yet our repentance is often much less um, well thought through. So, so that, was the, that was the one point I want to make, and the last point I want to make is this. It's just a rather small thing, but it is, I think, um, important because uh, it may not have entered your mind at all, and it's probably good if it didn't, but it's just one of these things that's in the commentaries a ton. When, when it says in verse 9, they, they ask the question, who knows, God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger, that we may not perish. So that's obviously how they heard the message, although I, I'd argue that there was a little bit of ambiguity in it, but that's how they heard it for sure. When God saw what they did, this is the key thing, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, again, no problem at all. Hopefully you just read through that without, a, without an issue. But the commentators often make a huge deal of that because they say, well, this text, and there are a couple other texts, but this is really the biggie. This text shows that God actually, you know, maybe some in some extreme cases they would say, God doesn't know the future. He's kind of waiting to see how are you going to act, and and then I'll 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 react to that. Uh, you do something, and I'll do something, or 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 you know I had this idea in my mind, but you know what you, you've convinced me. I'm going to change my mind. Um, a, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, so now I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. In other words, they're looking at God in this in this mutable way that He's changeable, or that He's He somehow limits His knowledge of the future. And, and it's a way of undercutting the sovereignty of God. The only thing I'll say about that is, I mean, there's a lot that we could say about the term relent and all that. But the main thing I'll say is this. Um, I think when we see these cases, and there are one or two of them, I, I think it's actually fairly easy to understand. We overly complicate it. But the, the simplest way to understand it, and I think the best way to understand it, is similar to how you understand something like Psalm 136, 12, which I hope I'm getting right. I think I am. Yeah. Um, where the psalmist is talking about the Lord and his steadfast love enduring forever. And you see this throughout the psalms. I'm just picking one verse that, that is a familiar one. 
you know, so I'll read, I'll read verse 11. He brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is that psalm, you know, repeats that over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever. And then it says this in verse 12. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he's talking about the exodus from Egypt. Now, now I don't think any of you say, oh, this is helpful. This actually teaches us that God has, you know, arms and, and they're, they're strong and he can stretch them really far and, 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 that, and, and that therefore God is not a spirit like the Bible tells us he is. God is actually a, a body um, with an arm that goes out and moves the Israelites out from the Exodus. You go, no, no, that's not, that's not what it means. What it means is it's a, it's a, it's a, what we would call an anthropomorphism. It's a way of it's using human language and human descriptors to talk about what God is doing. So it, it's, it's a really good way of communicating, but it's not communicating this concrete truth that God is not a spirit. He's actually, you know, he's actually got arms that, that stretch really far. Um, and, and similarly, in the Bible, we, we see occasionally... What we would call, if that's an anthropomorphism, what we might call an anthropopathism, which is, which is using human emotional language to talk about what happens with God. We're losing half the class. So, um, uh, but so, so I think that's exactly what we get in, in Jonah. We see they do this, and then what do we have? It's like with an outstretched arm. God turns from his anger. God relents. God has compassion. Well, does, he have, does that mean he changes his mind or has limited knowledge? The Bible says he knows all things. The Bible says he does not change. Does this, does this undermine that? The answer is no. It's just like we have these anthropomorphisms. His eyes go over across the whole earth. His, his ears here, this sweet smell comes up to his nostrils. His arm stretches out. No, S- same thing here. Um, to describe what the Lord does. And the point is that he just has great compassion on them, and his overflowing compassion is now spilled out um, onto the Ninevites who are, who are repentant. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us. We know that there's so much more to study, but we thank you that you've given us a little bit of time to do this, and we pray that your spirit would use it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.